0: Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day's unipolarity is precisely that the West is leading Ukraine down. We
1: don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes.
0: To bring chip productions here to the U.S. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, can you still get your germanium on AliExpress? After the U.S. restricted Chinese access to high-end chips... China is looking to ban this vital chip ingredient. So where do we go from here? Can America ban the stuff that makes germanium? Or is this the Chinese going one step up in the chip wars?
1: For months, elements within NATO have been piling on the pressure to open a liaison office in Japan. The French think that's a terrible idea. This week, they finally exercised their veto. So as the world becomes ever more security-centered, what happens to Western powers that aren't in the North Atlantic?
0: Finally, The U.S. is sending cluster bombs to Ukraine, or controversial cluster bombs, to give them their full name. Now that even Rishi Sunak has come out against the decision, it seems a wedge is about to be driven through the Western alliance. More broadly, are we about to move beyond the Geneva Convention consensus on what weapons are barbarous? But first, braving the elements. This week, we have got the biggest escalation in the China-America trade war since really the initial imposition of US sanctions. We at Multipolarity uh, have followed this story since the US restricted China's access to high-end semiconductor wafers, high-end chips, and the machinery which make them, the, the, the lithographic machinery that made them. Now, at the time You and I said, Philip, that the US had probably miscalculated, that China had far more leverage to strike back. And since then, we have followed a series of stories, quite frequently in recent weeks actually, where China has slowly been moving up the escalatory ladder, where they have been taking baby steps toward Retaliating against the initial U.S. restrictions, first we ran the, we, we we discussed the story about uh, Chinese uh, restrictions on Micron, which is a U.S. chip manufacturer. We also spoke last week about the changes in Chinese foreign policy laws, which were designed to give Chinese leadership a suite of options to uh, essentially fight a trade war. And now this week we're seeing a much bigger move by the Chinese. What they're essentially doing in a nutshell is in retaliation for being prevented from gaining easy access to high-end chips and semiconductors, they are in turn restricting the materials available for the US and its allies to produce high-end semiconductors and chips. So what have they done? They've restricted the, uh, the export of, or they're going to restrict from the 1st of August, the export of two materials, one called gallium and one called germanium. Now, these are two materials, uh, metals or metal-like substances, that are used in, in extensively in the production of high-tech goods. Now, that includes things like microwave amplifiers and solar cells and LEDs even, Uh, but also power electronics and and, uh, radio frequency amplifiers, infrared light uh, detectors and transmitters and thermal imaging cameras. But also, crucially, in addition to those, the production of microchips. I actually was reading a bit about this, and I don't really want to bore our listeners with all of the science. I'm not sure I understood it myself, but I heard one person describe it beautifully, given that this is a Chinese restriction, as these metals are sort of um, MSG, monosodium glutamate, and in the same way that you can sprinkle it into a Chinese dish to make it taste more savory and delicious, you can also sprinkle these things like MSG into a range of of high-tech products, including microchips and high-tech devices and gadgets. So they're going to restrict this. This is going to have a significant effect, I would imagine, both on the supply of these essential and crucial uh, substances, uh, but also the the overall cost. Even if manufacturers of these these products actually have enough gallium and germanium uh, to still produce, the price is going to go up.
1: Our kind of overarching view ever since this um, trade war started to get going, if that's what it is, maybe it's not quite a trade war yet, but it's a prelude to a trade war, um, which may or may not happen, I think our kind of basic take was um, the U.S. is miscalculating because China owns the manufacturing base um, to a very large extent. And so the United States is much, much more dependent on China than China is on the United States. And if you study both economies, this becomes obvious very quickly. I would have thought it was well known up until the Americans started this stuff, which uh, uh, you know isn't particularly wise from my point of view. I think germanium and gallium uh, highlight this really nicely. I'll just say, out of interest, it's quite ironic the names of the two elements. Obviously, germanium is Germany and gallium is Gaul, it's France. So <laughs> the fact that they're now made in, in China is kind of amusing. Basically, these are... I wouldn't say byproducts, but they're certainly involved in the production of much larger scale industrial goods. So China uh, accounts for 60% of uh, germanium supplies in the world. You can get it either from coal, which is about 25% of what China are producing, and from um, zinc production, which is about 75%. The zinc production, for a variety of reasons, is the preferable way of doing this, apparently. The gallium, uh, China accounts for about 80% of the gallium, is derivative of aluminium production or aluminium production for our American listeners. So this gives a really clear-cut sense of why, not to put too fine a point on why we were right... <laughs> You can't just say, I'm going to set up a gallium factory or I'm going to set up a germanium factory. These are derivative industries of extremely large scale industry, aluminium production, zinc production, gallium and germanium aren't the only things. This is just the tip of a much broader iceberg. The reason that China have have chosen these two, well, on its face economically and strategically, it's because, as you say, they hit the high-tech industry. So it's like for like, it's eye for an eye. You come after our high-tech stuff, we'll go after yours. Also, it hits, I think you alluded to it, it hits um, certain military productions. You need this for radar and infrared, night vision, I believe gallium is very important for night vision optics. And uh, if you know anything about the American military, you'll know that they love their night vision optics. So it hits in both those ways. But I'd say, I'd say it also makes a point and it makes the point very cleanly that I think we were trying to make from a theoretical perspective, you know, months ago or whenever we started discussing this, it just shows. Now you see, you know, uh, you're reading an explainer article online about gallium and germanium and it gets everyone reading it to go, oh, Wow. There's a bunch of stuff in the world that plugs into all these high-tech industries and everything, and it's derivative of this serious industrial base that we don't have. And we can't just set up a gallium factory in, in Pennsylvania. We'd need to start back up the aluminium production in the country, and then we'd have to derive gallium production from that. And that's a whole industrial policy. Well, that's what it is. And ever since we've started talking about this, I've been trying to make the point that if, if America wants to wean itself off Chinese production, they're going to need a serious industrial policy. And it will mean stuff like aluminium production, domestic steel production, zinc production, because this isn't going to be the last. These are just, this is just them tugging at very specific hairs, the ones that are connected to military and high tech. But you can only imagine what, what lower-end manufacturing in the U.S. requires? I, I I wouldn't care to guess dyes, for example, basic plastics, these kind of things. I mean, it boggles the mind to even think about this stuff. Just to give some sense of how readily available this stuff is, I went on before the show, you can buy gallium and germanium on AliExpress right now. But if the, if the Chinese put uh, the restrictions in place, you won't be buying it from Aliexpress anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if various manufacturers are using Aliexpress or Alibaba to order that stuff right now. So this just shows how integrated I can sit on my little phone here and I can tap in and I can buy 10 grams of, of gallium delivered to my door. Well, when that gets shut down, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah,
0: that's right. Since we started covering, um, us attempts to, uh, essentially the, you know, hobble the Chinese economy in certain specific areas it, you know, the U S essentially said that they were going to try to prevent the Chinese from gaining, uh, from developing beyond a certain degree, uh, of, you know, technological, um, uh, you know, technological development, essentially. Um, we said from the beginning that this would backfire was the wrong way to go about things. You were very clear, Philip, that, it was something that you needed to address at home before you start, you know, trying to draw up the sanctions bridge or punish other countries. And, the, you know, the U.S. was vulnerable to uh, retaliations. And here we are now. This is really the first one where, you know, we covered Micron, we covered the, the changes of law, but this is the first one that I sense is going to have a real impact as I said at the beginning, they're essentially saying, "Okay, if you want to try to want to try to restrict our access to these high-end chips and semiconductors, we're going to restrict your ability to actually make them, and then everybody loses, except, you know, the Chinese are already well along the process of uh, developing their own chip industry." I think one of the interesting things to think about this, though, is the reason that this is a, um, a this is a very powerful weapon that the Chinese could pull. I mean, gallium and germanium are not the only two um, materials. Rare, uh, you know, They've also got a whole suite of rare earth metals as well where they dominate the market. But the reason that this is such a powerful tool is because the Chinese have cornered the market. Now, they did restrict, a few years ago, access to Japan. There was a diplomatic SPAC, and uh, the, the, the restricted access that the japanese could have to these rare earth metals and the japanese developed you know within a couple of years developed their own industry and their purchases from the chinese declined so of course the you know the chinese eventually lost out there there are three things i would say about this the first thing i would say is that japan still does have a big industry it has a big industrial policy uh, very seriously and well-considered industrial policy, and it has very serious, highly competent uh, bureaucrats and civil servants who think about this sort of thing and work on this sort of thing. I do not get that impression about Europe or the United States. Neither of these two kind of core regions of the West, if you like, are anywhere close to coming up with a serious industrial policy uh, to help them cope with a multipolar world in which the US and China are increasingly at each other's throats and trying to throw punches to damage each other. So that's the first thing I would say. Even if they do manage to develop this industry, they might re- rely, for instance, more on aluminium recycling. I'll get to that in a moment. It's going to put the price up. The reason why the Chinese dominate the market was like, you know, 98% of the production and sale of these gallium and and germanium and and the reason they corner the market is they're just cheaper than everyone else these things are commodities essentially quite rare commodities it's not like brent crude or timber or something like that it's it's much rarer but it's still a commodity and the reason they dominate the market is it's so much cheaper so even if the us and say europe or, or other places in the world manage to cobble together an industry that 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 covers the needs that are currently covered by the Chinese it's still going to be more expensive than it would have been for the Chinese this means two things first of all it's inflationary so things like microchips and semiconductor wafers and you know night vision optics are just going to be more expensive but it also gives the Chinese then a competitive advantage with their high-tech industry. So it has that effect. Now, I was also doing a bit of research about this, and I read something in um, the Argus, which is a a kind of an industry uh, paper for commodities. And there was an instance just a couple of years ago, actually, where the, um, the gallium price surged because of supply disruptions from China. Now, this was based on two things. First of all, supply chain dislocations caused by covid but secondly the original sanctions that were placed i believe by trump on chinese imports of non-ferrous metals which of course covered gallium at the time u.s companies were well aware that these sanctions were going or tariffs were going to be imposed so they stockpiled they bought loads of gallium and they stockpiled but the price still went up it surged from 235 dollars per kilo or gram right up to almost 400 so you know you're talking about a 80 percent increase in price just like that now that was just because of some supply disruptions and a fairly small tariff on the on the price what's going to happen when the chinese say no no that's it it's gone you know we're you're we're not selling to you there might be ways around that through third parties, but I assume the, it seems the way that the Chinese are gonna do this is they're gonna license sales of gallium. You know, Anybody who wants to sell it or anyone who wants to sell germanium, they're gonna to have to release, receive a license from the Chinese Ministry of Trade. So if they see suddenly, I don't know, the Philippines buying 50 times more gallium than they were two months ago, then they're going to realize that that's a, a kind of a cutout to get it to the U.S. or to get it to Taiwan or to get it to Korea or Japan. Now, I don't know if it's going to be as bad as this, but theoretically it could be. Even if they manage to develop their own industry, that's going to take time measured in years, not weeks or months. And even if they do, it's going to be more expensive. So this could be actually quite serious to, you know, it could really dent The viability of of a whole range of industries in the US.
1: Yeah, it certainly feels that way. I mean, I guess it's worth commenting on the background, the the kind of background noise surrounding this that um, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, is over in Beijing, uh, I believe, at the time of recording. And she's kind of trying to make nice with the Chinese. um, But it's a bit of a sorry show, really. I mean, she went over and basically was talking to them about investment. Uh, targeting, I, I think, basically. And she was saying, look, don't worry, it'll be laser-focused on extremely defined interests of national security. But they're not going to believe that. I mean, as you said, the uh, the original semiconductor ban wasn't laser-focused on specific national security issues. It was an attempt to keep their their electronics or semiconductor industry one generation behind the west. So going over and and trying to make nice and then, you know, saying stuff to a room full of people none none of whom believe what you're saying. I mean, maybe it'll be great for western headlines to show that you're trying, but it's not credible diplomacy in a way. And the more I watch this play out, the more I see a gigantic mistake, a huge miscalculation on the part of the White House. I don't think that they fundamentally understood this stuff. I don't think that they consulted with the relevant people in business before doing this, or if they did consult with them, they were given a back row seat, um, and maybe they got two words in, but um, were, don't, were drowned out by people who, frankly, didn't really know what they were talking about. Um, well, the the implications of it are now becoming clear. It's, as you say, these, these markets are pretty... Um, a small shock to them will probably cause prices to go out of control not surprising they're not deep liquid markets <laughs> they're they're for a very fringe commodity only certain buyers buy them only certain sellers sell them so it's a very tight market and i increasingly think that the white house can't really i think it does actually probably want to wind a lot of this stuff back you know it's seen the other side of the looking glass now and it sees it sees that this might not work out so well i think they've definitely lost the business community on this. They're not coming out and publicly criticizing the White House. But the fact that they went over to Beijing a few weeks ago signals that they're not interested in this. I'd imagine that there's private conversations going on, highlighting these issues. So the White House kind of is in a position where I don't think it can actually wind back the semiconductor bans. I think that would be too much of a loss of faith. And I wonder if it won't take another president to renormalize these relations and not coincidentally i am definitely getting the sense that there are a lot of people on the democratic party side who are thinking of not to put too fine a point on it throwing president biden under the bus his presidency has we don't talk politics much on the show and you know we want to keep it that way but frankly objectively speaking president biden's been a bit of a disaster on pretty much all fronts his industrial policy was too small but kind of good but apart from that, there's inflation. There's a conflict in Central Europe that doesn't seem to be resolving itself. There's the this issue with China, which I imagine is at the top of the business community's agenda. It hasn't gone so well. So um, you know, I, I I wonder if if actually this China trade war might not be driving some of the discontent you're seeing around Biden right now, and if people aren't super familiar with. American politics, basically what's happening is the Democrats and the more liberal leaning newspapers and media outlets are beginning to discuss some of the issues around his son, Hunter Biden. These are corruption issues, drug addiction, all sorts of nasty stuff. But the stuff's been out for a very long time, but it's kind of been the mainstream media or the liberal media or whatever you want to call it has kind of avoiding it. Now they're starting to discuss it. I read a I read an article on on Hunter Biden's illegitimate child who's being ignored and frozen out of the family in the New York Times over the weekend by Maureen Dowd, their main uh, opinion leader. So I wonder, actually, if the establishment or whatever you want to call it, the business community, everybody, you know, all the interest groups, I think they could stomach Ukraine. I don't think they're happy about inflation, but I think they could stomach it. But this China thing might be a bit of a bridge too far. And I wonder if it might not be uh, uh, undermining the uh, the Biden presidency itself. And But but if, if that is true, and that's speculation, but I don't think it's completely without merit. I think that if, if that's the direction of travel, if Biden is actually replaced, we might see a very sharp reversion to normal relationships with China that might actually be part of the whole process. So it'll be interesting to watch moving forward, but I'm with you. This is turning into an absolute disaster. Uh, Western Pacific treaty organization. So France has announced that it's holding up a deal. NATO was apparently interested in expanding, uh, not expanding per se, but the way that it's quoted in the press is expanding its reach into Asia. Basically, the idea was that they were going to open, I think it was an office in Japan. So that will be the first kind of outpost in the region. So I guess that will kind of plant the NATO flag out there. And uh, I think it was hoped, the annual Leader Summit, which is in Lithuania um, next week, I think. I think it was hoped that that the Japan office would be kind of on the table. And although it seems like kind of a minor thing to open an office, it would be kind of a big deal because it would say that NATO is now getting itself involved in Asia. Now, what did the the LACA say? Basically, the president's office said, uh, we're not in favor as a matter of principle. And they also noticed that as far as the office is concerned, the Japanese authorities themselves have told us that they are not extremely attached to it. So this was probably a relatively controversial idea to begin with. I mean, it's pretty absurd if you think about it. NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Obviously, Japan is not in the North Atlantic. So <laughs> that might throw a few uh, sticks in the spokes, as it were. But it also kind of signals, I think, that the Europeans don't really want to, I don't want to say don't want to get involved in Asia, but they. this is a continuing part of their attempt to pursue an autonomous policy vis-a-vis China. And uh, given what we've just talked about (laughs) with the uh, issues around these uh, elements um, and their potential destructive power some Chinese sanctions might have on American industry, I think that the Europeans are becoming increasingly vindicated by this position. But I think it's basically, I mean, we can talk about it more, what it means in the region, how it conflicts with the treaty and so on, which is interesting. But I think... I think first and foremost, this is France and probably Europe backing France silently saying, um, yeah, we don't, this NATO organization was not set up to be some sort of global American power project. That wasn't the idea.
0: We're not going to let it turn into that. I think it would be quite useful to draw back here a little bit or quite a long way and have a look at what the American strategy would be or, or probably is in the western pacific that is the chunk of the pacific near china and japan and the philippines and try to understand this little bit of nato news through that prism i think what the americans are going to try to do is something called offshore balancing now for listeners who aren't into the world of international relations or grand strategy what offshore balancing is is where you are not a part of a region but The region is of interest to you. And what you try to do is use your economic and military and diplomatic power to essentially maintain a balance within that region so no one power gets strong enough to control and and, and gain a kind of a hegemonic control over that specific region. Now, the main and most famous example of this was Britain's policy for the 300 years before 1945, it was essentially it understood that the english channel made it fairly immune to invasion from from europe as long as no single power in europe managed to control all of europe's uh, manpower and, and and financial and economic resources if that did happen then britain great britain would be under threat so what britain did was it actually fought with an ever-shifting list and array of alliances to essentially prevent any one power getting too strong. I mean, it, it, you know, it fought it fought with the Dutch against the Spanish. It, it, it fought with the Spanish against the French. It fought with the French against the Germans, and so on and so forth. And what the U.S. are doing is essentially they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to build up an array of alliances, essentially, where those allied groups together will be enough to counter a far more powerful China. You know, China is much more powerful than even Japan. It's much more powerful than the Philippines, certainly. It's more powerful than South Korea. It's more powerful than Vietnam. But together, and within, with U.S. backing as the balancing power, these countries could essentially balance China's power and and, and, and the U.S. could therefore maintain The current status quo and essentially the US strategic position within the region. It would prevent the US, uh, it would prevent China from getting hegemonic control over that region and being able to set the terms of trade, being able to set the diplomatic terms, and eventually by doing that, be able to compete globally on equal footing to the US, not take over the world. China doesn't have the capacity to do that, but to compete with equal footing. So the U.S. is trying to prevent that. And what it's trying to do is to try to build up a web of alliances. Unlike in Europe, though, where there's one single alliance, it's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. In Southeast Asia, that's not as possible, because in Europe, NATO evolved from the Cold War situation. It evolved from the fact that there was a real threat to European, stability, European uh, freedom in the form of the Soviet Union. So the Western European nations, Canada and the United States, formed NATO. And then after the Cold War, famously, that expanded. But based on that platform, it's a different situation in the Western Pacific. So the U.S. is at the center of a range of different alliances, there is the Quad, which involves India, Japan, um, the United States, and Australia. There's also AUKUS, which involves the United Kingdom, Australia, and the US. Uh, there's another more recent uh, alliance, which is four countries. I believe it's uh, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and the US. Um, so there's a whole range of a, a kind of a network, a, a, a web of alliances. And I think what the US would like to do is draw NATO in there as well so that the European countries could get involved and they would be on the US side of the ledger. And as we've discussed many times on the podcast, there's a battle in Europe at the moment between what I call the Atlanticists. So Atlanticists would be, you know, the exemplars of Atlanticists would be people like Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. It would be be like, Annalena Bierbrock, the uh, German foreign minister and and leader of the Green Party, and it would be the British foreign policy establishment. They're Atlanticists and what they believe is that their interests are best served by a very close relationship with the United States and essentially uh, a global order that's run by and controlled by the United States. On the other side of the battle in Europe are what I call the autonomists and they would be um, best characterised by people like Viktor Orban and Emmanuel Macron and traditionally and probably still to a certain degree the, um, the SPD party uh, of Olaf Scholz in Germany and what they would like is a Europe that was autonomous, it was strong enough to defend itself it had strong diplomatic power. It had a fairly integrated economy. And, and through that, it would be able to get a good degree of strategic maneuver to make decisions based on its interests and not as part of the kind of an American crusade, as they would see. So I really see this NATO news as a, a, a great example of what's going on in Europe. And it's a much wider story. It's one we've covered. And I think essentially Macron is using his veto Uh, as a member of NATO, to land a punch for the autonomists, essentially.
1: I think it's worth stepping back here a little bit and just discussing the nature of the NATO treaty. People may not be super familiar with it, but it's actually very, very specific on these questions. The NATO treaty is a very specific defense treaty. So I'll just kind of read two parts of two sections of it just to give some sense. In Article 5... It states that the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that blah, 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 they all attack, right? Note specifically, in Europe or North America, the treaty lays this out extremely clearly. Article 6 is even more specific on this. It says, for the purpose of Article 5, an armed attack on one or more of the parties. Is deemed to include an armed attack on the territory of any of the parties in Europe or North America, on the Algerian departments of France, on the occupation forces of any party in Europe, on the islands under the jurisdiction of any party in the North Atlantic area north of the Tropic of Cancer, or on the vessels or aircraft in this area of any of the parties. Okay, I'm not reading that out to be extremely boring. I'm just pointing out. The NATO treaty is extremely specific to the extent that it discusses the now defunct Algerian departments of France. What's happening with all this kind of melange that we're getting after the war in Ukraine, all this kind of smoke being thrown up and everyone not really knowing what the world's going to look like after it, is the potential to discredit key organizations. Look, there's been a lot of discussion about whether NATO has run out of juice or not. Obviously, President Donald Trump was very hostile to NATO, even suggested that it should be wound down. Those voices have been knocking around for a number of years, actually. When the war in Ukraine started, a lot of people who are supportive of NATO thought that it had given NATO a shot in the arm. Uh, they thought that basically this, this war uh, on the outskirts of Europe had shown that NATO was still a live actor. Now, others said that NATO was partly responsible for the war, blah, blah, blah. So complicated discussion, but actually, I think much more fundamental than any of that is what happens with this, with these new relationships, this, this multipolar world that's emerging effectively and the new relationships that come out of it. Trying to force a document that I just read out to um, cajole, effectively, Europe into taking part in a theater that Europe has basically no interest in. Europe has, inter- has a lot of interest in trading with China because China is the most rapidly growing largest country in the world, and it will become an increasing share of European trade as time moves on. Europe has a lot of interests there. Europe doesn't have any defensive strategic interests, in that area of the world. And the US, it seems to be, or not just the US, but the kind of Atlantisists within the entire West seem to not understand that there are fundamental interests at stake here. They seem to, they seem to think that um, because you're kind of friends with somebody and you've been friends with somebody for a while, that then you all just get on the same train, right? And that naivete is transferring into the idea that you can take a document that I've just read parts out and say, yeah, well, we can just bend that. All of it when you actually look into it is just really ropey thinking. It's just really shallow thinking. And I think the main concern here is if they keep trying, you know, if the if the NATO expansionists, if you want to call them that, often overlap with the Atlanticists, if they want to keep trying to 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 reform these existing institutions, to do something that they're not designed for, these institutions will just collapse. They'll lose their credibility and they'll collapse. Cluster F. The story behind this is that the White House announced that they were sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. Now, I don't think cluster munitions are going to change the state of the war there, but it was a very surprising move for people who are familiar with Or even vaguely familiar with these things. Cluster munitions are very controversial. Um, I won't go into why. Perhaps we can discuss that more as we go on. But the fact of the matter is that they are controversial and they are banned in many countries. And so it was a very, very unusual move because obviously America's position in the war that is supplying the Ukrainian military and so on hasn't been globally popular. It's only really been popular among its core allies in the West, broadly speaking. And a lot of these countries have banned cluster munitions. So it's very odd to watch a country do such a controversial thing vis a vis its allies when, you know, the allies are the only game in town. So that kind of gives the overview of what happened. But then the response to it. I think uh, well, I think was predictable, but um, but it's kind of what's really of note here. So first of all, the human rights groups condemned it. They said that you know these were banned munitions in many countries. They were inhumane, and so on. Maybe we can talk about that later. But the fact of the matter is, they condemned it, and the human rights groups have been largely on side for the weapons shipments to the war, as far as I know. I don't know privately what they think, but they haven't been kicking up a fuss about them. Perhaps more significantly. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that he didn't agree with the decision. Now that's not hugely surprising because the UK have banned cluster munitions, but the Prime Minister uh, of Britain is thought to be Biden's closest ally in this war. I mean, maybe some of the Central European countries would also qualify for that title, but certainly in the in, in Western Europe, Britain is the core ally of Washington in this war, and it's 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 stood by everything America does. But now even Rishi Sunak has come out and criticized an action of supplying weapons uh, to Ukraine by the American government. So it's a really surprising development. I was very surprised that
0: Washington did this. Okay, let's first talk about cluster munitions and what they do. Cluster munition is essentially, it can be a bomb, it can be a shell, it can be a missile. But instead of impacting on a certain point and exploding like a 155 millimeter artillery shell or cruise missile or a bomb before it hits the target it'll open and it will release a whole flurry a, a very large number of much smaller bomblets. these can be you know a little bigger than a hand grenade or a little bit bigger than that or even smaller than that depending on uh, the type of munition used now, what happens is then you get a range of much smaller explosions over a broad area and they are extremely good as anti-personnel weapons for that reason. I mean, imagine lobbing 150 hand grenades at a trench all at once and you get a, an idea of the, the kind of damage they can do. They're also very good for uh, putting runways out of action. For example, you can, you know, land a cluster bomb along the length of a runway and you've got, you know, 60 or 100 little mini explosions cratering the runway. And what you can also do with cluster munitions is you can make some of them false so that people have to take time, you know, removing or detonating what are actually not munitions at all. And you can put others on timers so that, you know, the initial ones go off and then, you know, secondary ones go off much later when people are probably coming to fix a runway or to pull away injured people or to reoccupy a trench or whatever uh the problem with all of this is that because some of them are on the timers and because of the nature of the weapon means that some of these bomblets don't actually explode what you tend to find is that once a large number have been landed on a, on a on a on a wharf you know in a war zone you tend to find that they explode much much later sometimes as many as years and decades later which has a, a, a horrific effect on the civilian population in that area. I mean, it really does. And the munitions themselves also have horrific effects on the troops and the soldiers in that area as well. And, and, and for that reason, there was a campaign for many, many years to ban cluster munitions and have them brought into a system of, uh, of restricted weapons. And ultimately, that was very successful, Many countries, including the United Kingdom, signed up to this and essentially, you know, outlawed the production or stockpiling or use of, uh, of cluster munitions. The United States did not, and I personally understand why because they're very useful. Let me tell you, a lot of the weapons used in war are horrendous. You know, imagine dying if you're standing, you know, the length of a running track away from a 155 millimeter artillery round exploding. And dying of fragmentation impacts. because That is not pleasant. You know, war is hellish and it's a crime and cluster munitions are another one of the very many bad ways to die in a war zone. I think the big story about this really is that the U.S. is, you know, on the weapons side of things, that it's having to send them. Both President Biden and uh, I believe Anthony Blinken have said that they are sending these munitions because they've run out of artillery shells. Now, for those of us who have been following this, they send a great many artillery shells from the from the US's very capacious arsenal (laughs) that ran down. Then they started buying from third parties, places like Pakistan. They also arm-twisted and browbeat the South Koreans and the Japanese to do an end run around their own uh, weapons export laws to loan, in inverted commas, the U.S. um, about 500,000, 105 millimeter, 155 millimeter shells each. Um, The U.S. emptied out, or maybe not emptied out, but certainly drew down quite extensively on um previously quite secret caches of weapons in the middle east which would want especially in israel which one would imagine were there you know for an emergency in which in the event that the u.s had to defend israel or the u.s had to provide weapons to israel in you know in the in a highly emergency situation which sometimes happens in that part of the world um and now all that's done so well what's left well In theory, the West has much greater manufacturing capacity and industrial capacity than Russia. We're always hearing about this in the news. But those of us who have followed this have said that, well, no, Russia is not a gas station with nukes as it's made out. Russia does actually have an industry. It's it's about more than hydrocarbons, and it, it still has a very significant weapons industry. And ultimately, it's simply, at this stage, outproducing the West. Of course, it was helped by the fact that the Soviets and probably Russians in general, because of their uniquely horrific experiences during the Second World War, maintained huge stockpiles of all kinds of weapons, tanks, armoured personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles, artillery tubes, and artillery shells. But they're also producing a lot of artillery shells. And at the moment, the US and Europe aren't. They cannot keep up with the expenditure of artillery shells in the Ukraine conflict at the moment, and so they're having to send cluster munitions. Cluster munitions are highly effective; they are very deadly, but they're not quite a direct replacement for 155 millimeter artillery shells. They do slightly different things. There's a crossover; the you know the Venn diagram of the two would you know would have a fair degree of overlap, and I'm sure there'll be. More useful to the Ukrainians than nothing, but I think this is quite a kind of embarrassment, really, to the West that they, you know, they're being outgunned by, and literally outgunned by an economy that they kind of derided for much of the last ten, fifteen years. You know, Obama derided it, John McCain did, Biden did when he imposed sanctions, and uh, you know, quite apart from the diplomatic issue, which we'll get onto in a minute, I'm sure but from the industrial perspective i think it's a, it should be at least a bit of an embarrassment
1: i think it's worth kind of taking a step back and thinking about how most people think about wars and conflict so most people don't pay a great amount of attention to this to of attention to this they they kind of partly follow it in the news and so on but one thing that's been hammered home into people is that some weapons you're not supposed to use um, and any time there's a, con- a, lar- a a serious conflict in the war, I think the Syrian civil war or something like that, um, the big headlines that a lot of people see are that the Syrians are using some baddie weapon. Um, and, and for that reason, that makes the leader of Syria, in this case Bashar al-Assad, a, a bad guy, and so we have to get rid of him. Similar claims were made against Saddam
0: Hussein. I think a great example of that, by the way, was barrel bombs. You know, there was a lot of coverage in the British media, I'm not sure about the US, but in the British media about when Syria was attacking these towns that were held by uh, the Islamic State or the Free Syrian Army or whoever, they were attacking them and and, and the air power they had were kind of dumb bombs, which were referred to as barrel bombs, essentially. Quite low accuracy, high explosive, quite devastating. But because there were so low accuracy, they exploded a lot, and, and, and the Syrian regime came under huge criticism for that, if you remember.
1: That's how people frame these things in their mind, that there's kind of a good way to conduct war and a bad way to conduct war. If you know more about it, that's probably things are more pro- pro- complicated than that when it comes to barrel bombs or cluster munitions. But the fact of the matter is that's how we narrate war to ourselves. And so this is why them sending the cluster munitions is so surprising. If you look at a map of the, the countries that signed up to the Convention on Cluster Munitions in 2008 in Dublin, you see that it's basically it's a bunch of African countries and then it's, it's a couple of Latin American countries and then it's all of America's allies and not America. Not Russia either, by the way, and not China. But all of America's allies and not America. So the obvious response to this action was going to be was that these countries would almost be automatically triggered into not supporting the American action because they've signed a convention on it. What that then generates is headlines saying, for example, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, 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 does not agree with the Americans sending cluster munitions. Most people have a vague sense in their mind that cluster munitions are in some way bad or banned. And so that really interferes with the moral case of, of your side, because you're violating your own rules in a way. And just to say something about that, the one of the things that the West has in its back pocket, and it's always been quite powerful, is this kind of moral righteousness in a sense. And sometimes it, it can be a little bit misleading, and sometimes it can be genuine. But the, the the idea that the West is the most civilized place, and that we're ensuring that when we get engaged in conflicts, or we're peripherally engaged in conflicts, that it's done in a civilized way. Whether it's true or not, sending these cluster munitions and the headlines that it's generated has seriously damaged that narrative. And I think it's actually damaged it more long-term than people will care to admit. Because when people remember things about a war, they often remember this. You brought up the barrel bombs. I'd say most listeners remember the barrel bombs thing. People remember this stuff. I think it was depleted uranium or something in Iraq as well. But that wasn't a banned munition. That was just like
0: yeah, that was in um, Iraq and uh, Serbia as well. Was the de- uh, depleted uranium tank uh, tank shells?
1: So it's a, and I think that wasn't even banned. That was just do they have kind of do they make people sick after the fact or whatever it was. But but when it's explicitly banned or or when it's been given a very bad name. These things stick around. They don't go away. And, and people used to know this. They used to be very sensitive of it because of the Vietnam era, when napalm got a very, very bad reputation. And all of the kind of um, all of the protesters and stuff ingrained in people's minds that napalm was this vicious weapon, which it is in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but the, the the napalm became almost a signifier of that war. And, and anyone who's seen a Vietnam film from the 1980s or 1990s, often made by Roger um, uh, Oliver Stone, <laughs> um, they'll they'll remember, you know, na- napalm everywhere, burning trees. This is the imagery, and, and it and gives lot the this-
0: strings right.
1: That's right and it gives a hellish imagery it's a hellish yeah. imagery so mm-hmm. the imagery around war is very powerful and it's very important and it 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 sticks around a lot longer than the war itself and america used to be very attuned to this but um but this this um this thing with cluster munitions makes me kind of question if they are still as attuned to that
0: well i'll give two examples in a minute for two ways this can go in terms of the public perception i would say about cluster munitions i I understand that they're particularly horrific. I understand that they take a particular toll on civilian populations and quite often for many decades after wars are finished, I understand that they pose really extraordinarily difficult tasks in terms of uh, clear-up operations and it can never quite fully be done properly. And it seems possible that, you know, Ukrainians will be dying for many years hence uh, after the use of these weapons. One thing I would say, though, is that when you get into a war, it, you know, countries don't go into wars very easily. Even the you know countries which declare wars, they it, it, it takes a lot to drive them into that position. And, and once they're in it, the stakes for both the um, both the attacking and the defending country, the two countries involved in the war, are so high, and the costs imposed on losing a war are so great. That it's almost inevitable that they'll use every single weapon that they can possibly get their hands on to to win this war. The idea, you know, I think for nuclear weapons, there's such a taboo about their use, quite rightly so, and, and, and such a fear about their use that that's something that perhaps countries might not reach to, you know, like... Britain losing in the Falkland Islands, they, I, I don't think they would have nuked Buenos Aires from a Polaris sub, right, because of the the taboo involved. But everything short of that, I could quite imagine Britain resorting to. Now, I, I think it was probably folly ultimately to expect that a country faced with, for instance, running out of 155mm shells and having nothing to replace it, or running out of 155 millimeter shells and replacing it with something imperfect but highly destructive in its own way. I think it was folly of people to expect countries at war with huge stakes to select the former option just to give up and say, okay, now we don't have 155 mil artillery, okay? Um, however, that that being said, to get to your main point, there's two examples here where uh, about the imagery of war, about the effect that it has on uh, the Western world's moral standing and our moral righteousness, and um, the degree to which we view ourselves as kind of uh, defenders of um, international rules and regulations. The first example I would give would be um, the, the, the scandal that emerged around the Guantanamo Bay and the Abu Ghraib detention camps one in a u.s owned enclave in the island of cuba and the and the second one uh, a a former prison in iraq that was used to detain uh persons of interest for the united states in both of those it it, you know it turned out that prisoners were under a great deal of psychological stress and psychological um harassment I i think some people would go so far as to say psychological torture and in both cases, I think many people, you know, what the Americans called enhanced interrogation techniques, I think a great many people consider those cross the line of torture. Perhaps not some of the most horrific tortures available, but, you know, waterboarding. I think Christopher Hitchens, the, uh, the late British columnist, defended the Bush administration's use of waterboarding and said it was not torture and then agreed to be subjected to water torturing and lasted 15 seconds before he decided it absolutely was torture. Those two revelations of of Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib really damaged, really seriously damaged, perhaps fatally, the righteousness of the American cause in Iraq. And I think they were both crucial to the way the Iraq war has become incredibly unpopular and has very few people which are willing to defend it now. The other, alter, the, 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 the other thing I would say is, though, that the U.S., after Iraq had been going on for some time and, 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 and while it was still engaging in the war and terror, the U.S. engaged in a, a mass campaign of assassination by drone of suspected Islamic terrorists in, uh, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, in uh, Afghanistan, and even in Pakistan as well and it, you know it would fly drones over an area where it suspected terrorists to be whether it was in their cars whether it was in the houses with the compound wherever it was and it would drop quite often hellfire missiles and uh, vaporize these people and of course it it, it 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 transpired that you know some of the people that it was doing were in, in american and western citizens and there was questions about that some of the people that it was doing this to uh, turned out not to be terrorists. Sometimes it was terrorists, but it ended up killing, you know, six perfectly innocent children and, 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 and their mothers. Uh, sometimes they just got it completely wrong. There was times when, they, you know, they vaporized a wedding, for example. You know, people going to celebrate a young couple in love, getting married, and, you know, scores, dozens of people there. And uh, they all end up getting killed or, or horrifically maimed, Okay. This also was something of a scandal, but it didn't quite have the same psychological effect as Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. Uh, It's still a huge scandal in the West, among left-wing circles. You know, if you go into the old-fashioned British left, I mean, I don't mean the kind of the modern Democrat Party and Labour Party kind of liberal progressive left. I mean, the old-fashioned left. You you know, you still hear talk about these kind of drone campaigns and the, the really terrible effects that they had the mistakes the so-called collateral damage but really for the general public at whole it's not a big deal in the way that Guantanamo and and, and Abu Ghraib are so I think it'll be interesting to follow this will these cluster munitions be more like the drone war on terror or will they be more like the Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo uh, effect in terms of how they uh, puncture or don't puncture, as it may be, uh, the West's kind of righteousness with regards to the current war and indeed its foreign policy in general.
1: We are fresh from a huge victory.